From WHYY in Philadelphia, this is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, and for Terry Gross. Well, I was born to call miner's daughter. Today, we remember country music star Loretta Lynn. She died Tuesday at the age of 90. We'll listen to our 2010 interview with her. Loretta Lynn's life story was made famous in the film Coal Miner's Daughter. One thing that daddy made sure of, he shoveled coal to make a poor man's dollar. Also, we'll hear from Rachel Bloom. She's best known for co-creating and starring in the Emmy-winning musical comedy TV show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. Now she stars in the new Hulu comedy series Reboot. And film critic Justin Chang will review Bros, the new gay rom-com starring Billy Eichner. This is Fresh Air Weekend. I'm Dave Davies, and for Terry Gross. Loretta Lynn, one of America's most beloved and influential country music stars, died Tuesday at the age of 90. Lynn was famous for her singing, her songwriting, and her life story, told in the 1980 film Coal Miner's Daughter. The film was adapted from Lynn's memoir, which described how she grew up in poverty in eastern Kentucky, became a wife at age 15, and after having four children, started writing songs and performing. She made her debut on the Grand Ole Opry in 1960. Lynn became the first woman to be named Entertainer of the Year by the Country Music Association in 1972. And in 1988, she was inducted into the Country Hall of Fame. Sixteen of her songs reached number one on the country charts. In her New York Times obituary, Bill Friskick's Warren wrote, quote, Ms. Lynn built her stardom not only on her music, but also on her image as a symbol of rural pride and determination. Her music was rooted in the verities of honky-tonk country and the Appalachian songs she had grown up singing. Terry interviewed Loretta Lynn in 2010. A tribute CD had been released which featured her songs recorded by the White Stripes, Steve Earle, Miranda Lambert, and others. They started with Loretta's first recording, Honky Tonk Girl, followed by the version on the tribute album performed by Leanne Womack. Loretta Lynn singing her song, I'm a Honky Tonk Girl, and then Leanne Womack from the new Loretta Lynn tribute, Coal Miner's Daughter. Loretta Lynn, what a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you, Terry. It's really nice to be on your show. 
Now, the song we just heard, that's the first song you wrote. It was your first record, released in 1960. Right. You say you wrote it in 20 minutes on a $17 guitar that your husband bought that's for you. That's true. <laughs> because he thought you sang well. And, yeah. Um, and, and you wrote a song because he told you to. Do you think you yeah. ever would have written or performed if your husband didn't say that's what you should do? No, I wouldn't have because I was too bashful. I wouldn't get out in front of people. I wouldn't, you know, I was really bashful, and I wouldn't, um, I would have never sang in front of anybody. So when you wrote Honky Tonk Girl with absolutely no songwriting experience, how did you approach <laughs> writing a song? You know, I just sat down with my guitar. I was outside. Uh, in fact, I was leaning up against the old toilet out there in the West Coast in Washington State. Did, did, you, and, say, did uh, you say the toilet? <laughs> that, uh, the old toilet, yeah. Okay. And uh, I sat there and wrote Honky Tonk Girl and Whispering Sea. So what made you think of the story that you tell in Honky Tonk Girl? Well, I think I probably listened to a bunch of people, you know, their songs and stuff, and, and I figured, well, I can, if they can write, I can too. So I just um, said, hey, I'm going to tell a story, and that's what I did. And had you hung and out on, at Honky Tonk, so did you know them from songs? No. Uh, when I first started writing, my husband got me a job at this little uh, bar. And me and a steel player and my brother, he played the fiddle and sang. So we sang together, and uh, so we really had a good time, you know. And uh, I wrote Honky Tonk Girl and Whispering Sea uh, during that time. So you were doing some performing? Yeah, I just had started. I in see. fact, I'd never sang in front of anybody till my husband pushed me out there, you know. I'd never been out and sang for anybody. But at home you sang. I rocked the babies to sleep. And uh, in Kentucky, when I was growing up with my sisters and brothers, we all sang and rocked the babies to sleep, you know. But that was about as far as we ever did, you know. So when you recorded your first single, Honky Tonk Girl, you were 24. You'd already been married for 11 years because you got married when you were 13. And you already had four children. Do I have that right? I had four kids. Uh-huh. And the twins came a little bit later. <laughs> yeah, the, the twins come later. What was your life like as a wife and mother before you started recording? It wasn't easy. Uh, me and my husband both worked. I took care of the farmhouse. I cleaned and cooked for 36 ranch hands. Wow. And, um, yeah, before I started singing. And um, so it, singing was easy. I thought, gee whiz, this is an easy job. Wait, so you, you cooked and cleaned for 36 ranch hands and uh-huh. had four children? Uh-huh. Sure did. Paid the rent on the old house that we lived in, and um, that's what I did to make the rent. Yeah. Wow. Um, it wasn't easy, let me tell you. Life was hard. <laughs> so the, the next song we're going to hear is a song that you first recorded in 1966, Don't Come Home a Drinkin'. With All Lovin' right. On Your Mind. And this is, this is a great song. Gretchen Wilson sings it on the tribute CD. We're going to hear your version. But first I want to hear the story of how you wrote it. You'd already had about six years of songwriting experience behind you. You probably were no longer leaning against the toilet when you, <laughs> when you, when you wrote this. I was probably, um, a dude fixed me a little writing room at this time out in Goodlesfield. Do was your husband. And, was your, your, uh-huh. your late husband. Dude's my yeah. husband, yes. And um, he's the only one I've ever had. And... Um, so he fixed me this little writing room, and I'd go out there and I'd write. And this is one of the songs that I wrote was Don't Come Home Drinking with Loving on Your Mind. And at this point, did you feel like, I know how to write a song? Oh, yeah. When I wrote Don't Come Home Drinking, I knew I could write because I'd had quite a few on the charts by that time. <laughs> 
Now, you've said that your husband is in every song that you've written, in a large way or in a small way. Still is. So I it, mean, <laughs> if I write a song, he's in there somewhere. Were you thinking of him when he wrote this song? I mean, oh, yeah. Would he come home after drinking like that? Well, sure. If a man drinks, he's going to come home drinking. He liked to drink. Was the song intended to send him a message at all? Not really. Uh, I probably told him many times. I didn't have to sing about it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, let's hear the song. This All right. is Don't Come Home a Drinkin', uh, recorded in 1966 by Loretta Lynn, right. and it was a number one country music chart. Okay. Well, you thought I'd be waiting up when you came home last night. You'd been out with all the boys and you ended up half tired. But liquor and love, they just don't mix, leave the ball or me behind. That was Loretta Lynn, recorded in 1966. And there's a new Loretta Lynn tribute CD. And on that CD, uh, that song is performed by Gretchen Wilson. Now, when you started performing, Patsy Cline was your mentor until she Mm -hmm. died. Um, But, you know, she hadn't been in the business that long when uh, I came to Nashville. She'd only been singing two or three years. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. So she must have really related to what you were going through. Oh, yeah. Uh, we talked a lot. <laughs> what were some of the things that she taught you that really helped you a lot? Things relating to, you know, from from clothing to performing style to dealing with well, the music industry. Yeah, go ahead. You know, with the style and everything that I that I was, you know, I was in blue jeans and a t-shirt or blue jeans and just a western shirt. And uh, she uh, taught me a lot uh, how to dress. And What did she and, tell you uh, about how to dress? Well, she told me to get out of the jeans, you know. Of course, I would wear them till we get to the radio station, and then I'd get in the back seat and put on my dress. And then I'd take the dress off and go back into my jeans and wait till the next radio station. <laughs> <laughs> and then I'd go back into my dress again. <laughs> and did she give you any advice about performing? Not really. Uh, I think she wanted me to learn that on my own, and I think it's best for every artist to learn on their own what they're going to do on stage and how they act. And I, th- I don't think anybody else can teach you that. We're listening to Terry's 2010 interview with country music star Loretta Lynn. She died Tuesday at the age of 90. We'll hear more of their conversation after a break. And Justin Chang will review Bros, the new gay rom-com starring Billy Eichner. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air Weekend. The following message comes from NPR sponsor Sattva. Founder and CEO Ron Rudson is on a mission to bring quality sleep to more people. Health and wellness are so tied to quality sleep. And I'm trying to tell everyone, look, you have to treat sleep like an activity. Because I believe sleep is the most important thing in your life. To learn more, go to sattva.com slash NPR. 
Let's get back to Terry's 2010 conversation with country music star Loretta Lynn. She died on Tuesday at the age of 90. Loretta Lynn's life story was made famous in the film Coal Miner's Daughter. I want to play another song that you wrote. And this was a song that was actually pretty controversial at the time it came out. And it's called Rated X. Yeah. And, um, I, I'm going to let you describe what the song's about. Well, it's about uh, a woman that's been married and divorced. And I'll just let you listen to it. Okay. And <laughs> what I want to do, uh, I want to go to the tribute CD. Um, the White Stripes have a really uh, good reworked, like reinterpreted version of this. Yeah. And I know you've worked with Jack White before. He produced a terrific album of oh, yours yeah. in 2004 called Van Lear Rose. Right. So do you want to say anything about the, the White Stripes version of your song? Well, I think uh, whatever Jack does is good. I mean, you can't... Um, uh, I mean, he's good. You have to love him. So this is good. Okay, so this is the song Loretta Lynn wrote. She recorded it in 1971. It's called Rated X, and here's the White Stripes from the Loretta Lynn tribute album Coal Miner's Daughter. That's the White Stripes from the new Loretta Lynn tribute album, Coal Miner's Daughter, and um, also Loretta Lynn's uh, famous memoir, Coal Miner's Daughter, has been published in a new edition. Now, we were talking before about writing from a, a woman's point of view, which Rated X uh, most certainly is. Um, we know about what it's like to be a divorced woman when men think that you're available and try to take advantage of you and you have a reputation so uh, why was the song controversial? I think it was because, uh, you know, you've mar- been a married woman. I think it, when you write about it, they take it to heart, too, you know. they People do. So um, I think that was it. It just starts out, if you've been a married woman, things didn't seem to work out. Divorce is the key to being loose and free, so you're going to be talked about. So that's exactly how it is, you know. When you called it Rated X, I mean, do you, do you think some people thought, oh, this is going to be a very provocative, sexy oh, yeah, <laughs> song because you know, it's Rated the, X? Yeah. A lot of the disc jockeys, uh, you know, banned it before they even listened to it. And, um, you know, they, it, after it got way up in the charts and they all flipped the record and started listening to it and playing it. But, um, you know, another old dirty record from Loretta Lynn. <laughs> <laughs> 
Now, now something that was even more controversial than Rated X was your song, The Pill, which is That's right. about... The Pill was on the way, and, you know, we have a lot of them that says it like it is, so that's really, I guess, we're not to talk about the way it is. <laughs> this has some lyrics that I, I think, you know, really were controversial in some country music circles at the time, and the lyrics include... Um, this old maternity dress I've got is going in the garbage. Mm-hmm. And you've set this chick in your last time because now I've got the pill. I'm tearing yeah. down this brooder house because now I've got the pill. Yeah. So the song sounds autobiographical in some ways. I'm not saying that you are necessarily angry in the way that the character in the song is angry, but you had six children. I had six kids. I lost three. You lost three. I lost three. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I was about I five that. and six. Well, it wasn't, uh, you know, I lost them before they were born. Um, oh, so but, you had um, six and lost three others? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of pregnancies. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, okay. Stating the obvious. <laughs> um, did you share the song's anger? Well... I sure didn't like it when I got pregnant a few times. Uh, you know, it, it's hard uh, for a woman to have so many kids. And, um, well, at the time, I guess I had um, four, and then I got pregnant and had, you know, with, with the twins. But, um, yeah, I was a little angry. Let's hear it. And this was released in 1975, right. recorded in 1972. This is Loretta Lynn, The Pill. You wind me and dine me when I was your girl Promised if I'd be your wife, you'd show me the world But all I've seen of this old world is a bed and a doctor bill I'm tearing down your brooder house, cause now I've got the pill All these years I've stayed at home while you had all your fun And every year that's gone by another baby's come There's gonna be some changes made right here on Nursery Hill You set this chicken your last time Cause now I've got the pill This old maternity dress I've got is going Clothes I'm wearing from now on Won't pick up so much yardage Mini skirts, hot pants And a few little fancy frills Yeah, I'm making up for all those years Since I've got the pill That's Loretta Lynn, recorded in 1972. It was released in 75. The song is called The Pill. Um, now, you've said that you, you never even used the pill as birth control. <laughs> um, well, if I'd have had it, I'd have used it uh, I see. at the time. But, yeah, because right. see, when, back, back when I was having all the kids, we didn't have birth control pills. Or if they did, I didn't know anything about them. Well, so you write that there's a lot you didn't know about when you got married in 1947. And you say you didn't, didn't know anything about sex either, did I? <laughs> no, you say you didn't know anything about sex no. or or even pregnancy. You say when you got pregnant, you didn't even know the word. Is that right? Well, I don't know. 
uh, I guess we just called it having a baby. We didn't call it pregnant. Uh-huh. Back in Butcher Holler, there was a lot of things we didn't know. So a lot of things they still don't know back there. <laughs> when I think of you getting married, it just seems so young. Well, it is. It is way too young. So when you got married, about a year afterwards, you moved to the state of Washington. Washington State. Far mm-hmm. away. Did you feel lost for a while when you, when you moved away oh, yeah. from your family and everything you knew? Yeah, Daddy said he told me he wouldn't take you away where I couldn't see you. <laughs> I was 3,000 miles away two months after he married me. Wow, I was thinking what, what it must have been like for you to be, you know, so far away from home at the age of, like, 15, having children yeah. already. Um, you probably had yeah. no idea you were ever going to become famous. No, N- never, and um, I still don't. <laughs> I'm not famous. <laughs> I'm just me. I want to play another song, and this is uh, something more recent than what we've been hearing. This is your collaboration with Jack White. He produced an album of yours in 2004, Van Leer Rose. How did you meet? I I went to Detroit to work, and Jack White came to see me. And, of course, he told me about when he was little, he was about nine years old, when coal miner's daughter came out. He stayed in the theater the whole time, all day long, and watched coal miner's daughter over and over and over. So... Uh, when he got a chance to work with me, he says, I told him I had to go home because I said, I've got to hurry because i got to record tomorrow. He says, well, how about me coming being the producer? I said, well, why not? That's how we got together. So he was in Nashville by the time I was, and uh, we recorded, and that's how we started. He lives here in Nashville now. Oh, I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah, he lives here in Nashville. Oh. So, yeah. So you're good friends now. Oh, yeah. We've always been good friends ever since we did the album. The track I want to play is called Miss Being Mrs. Uh, You wrote all the songs on this album. And uh, this is one of my favorites. Um, I like the song a lot, and also I just love how how stripped down it is. It's just you and a guitar. Is that that Jack White on guitar? That's Jack White. Okay. Uh, Do you want to say anything about writing the song? Well, uh, you know, I, I don't like to talk about the way I write songs. I just let people here and may know what I'm talking about. All right, good enough. So um, this is Loretta Lynn from the 2004 album Van Leer Rose, produced by Jack White, who's accompanying her on guitar. I lie here all alone In my bed of memories I'm dreaming of your sweet kiss Oh, how you loved on me I can almost feel you with me Here in this blue moonlight Oh, I miss being Mrs. Tonight Like so many other hearts Mine wanted to be free I've been held here every day Since you've been away from me My reflection in the mirror It's such a hurtful sight Oh, I miss being Mrs. Tonight Oh, I miss being Mrs. Tonight 
That's my guest, Loretta Lynn, uh, with Jack White on guitar from the album Van Leer Rose, which Jack White produced of Loretta Lynn songs in 2004. Well, Loretta Lynn, it's really been great to talk with you. Thank you so very it's much. It's been nice to talk to you, honey. Loretta Lynn speaking with Terry Gross in 2010. Lynn died Tuesday at the age of 90. The movie Bros is a new big studio rom-com that features a gay couple. Billy Eichner, who co-wrote the script with director Nick Stoller, stars alongside Luke McFarlane. They lead an entirely LGBTQ principal cast. Stoller's other directing credits include Forgetting Sarah Marshall, Neighbors, and The Five-Year Engagement. Bros is now showing in theaters. Our film critic Justin Chang has this review. There's a sharp-running commentary in Bros that pokes fun at how long it's taken Hollywood to cast gay actors as gay characters in non-tragic gay stories. The script, co-written by Billy Eichner and the director Nicholas Stoller, takes swipes at Oscar-winning prestige dramas like Brokeback Mountain and Milk for casting straight male actors as gay men. But it also mocks more recent trends, like the mass production of LGBTQ-themed entertainment by TV and movie studios, once they realized there was a huge audience for it. Bros knows that queer representation has always been a tricky minefield, and that as a rare gay-themed romantic comedy to be released by a major studio, it has a fair amount to prove. It was a clever move, then, to center the movie on an outspoken, pop-culture-savvy New Yorker named Bobby, who spends a lot of time thinking about and advocating for queer visibility. Bobby played by Eichner, has just been appointed to the board of the country's first LGBTQ plus museum, and he's passionate about teaching people queer history that goes beyond AIDS and the Stonewall riots. In this scene, he argues with the other board members about what to put in the final wing of the museum, which has yet to open to the public. We cannot afford to push our opening again. People will think we're in trouble. Maybe this whole place could fall apart. We need no ideas for what goes in the final wing, and we need them now. Cherry, go. You know the blue whale hanging in the Museum of Natural History? Yes. What about that, but instead of the blue whale, it's a lesbian? Oh, no. Yeah, uh -uh. okay, well, yeah, we can't do that. What if the final exhibit was a recreation of a queer wedding? I like that. Okay, that I don't have. Tomorrow, that is so That's sweet. Good. I love that. And people can come and register for wedding gifts here. You're gonna write that. Oh my God, and no! That is old-fashioned heteronormative nonsense. We need to get people to rethink history through a queer prism, not comfort them with another gay wedding, all right? It's a museum, it's not Shit's Creek. Oh, I like but Shit's I, Creek. I love Shit's Creek. That show has all layers. Right, everyone loves Shit's Creek, great. Okay. Okay. That's who you remind me of, Eugene Levy. Bobby's workplace banter is pretty funny. Still, while the supporting cast is both racially and sexually diverse, the characters are sometimes reduced to easy punchlines in a movie that focuses on two gay white cis men. The romance begins one night when Bobby goes to a club and meets Aaron, played by Luke McFarlane. Their first encounter on a neon-lit dance floor doesn't seem too promising, Bobby thinks Aaron, with his easy-on-the-eyes smile and gym-toned physique, is out of his league. Another friend describes Aaron beforehand as very hot and very boring. And sure enough, Aaron, who likes Garth Brooks and the movie The Hangover, turns out not to be quite on Bobby's cultural wavelength. But there's a flicker of mutual attraction, or at least curiosity there, all the same. And as they begin hanging out, Bros becomes a smart, nuanced comedy about how opposites can not only attract, 
but also learn something from each other. Bobby may initially dismiss Aaron's intelligence due to his jockish build and mainstream tastes, but Aaron turns out to be a lot sharper and more emotionally perceptive than he gets credit for. For his part, Aaron is dissatisfied with his dull job as an estate lawyer, and he admires the creativity and purpose that Bobby brings to his queer advocacy. It makes Aaron feel sheepish about his own out, but not always proud, approach to life, including his reluctance to talk about his love life with his family. This might sound like serious territory for a movie that mines a lot of laughs from the indignities of Bobby's sex life, including a couple of failed grinder hookups and a few attempts at group sex with Aaron and his friends. There are also a lot of cheeky cameos by LGBTQ fan favorites, including theater legends like Harvey Firestein and Kristen Chenoweth, plus an extended gag featuring Deborah Messing from Will and Grace. But as amusing as those scenes are, it's the movie's thoughtfulness about queer identity and activism that stays with you. Well, that and the terrific chemistry between the two leads. As Bobby, Eichner taps into the comic belligerence of Craig Middlebrook, his character from Parks and Recreation, and also gets to show off the singing chops he used as Timon the Meerkat in The Lion King. His intensity finds just the right cushion in McFarlane's easygoing vibes. It's easy enough to root for these two characters to wind up together, as you would in any good romantic comedy. But it poses an interesting challenge for bros. Bobby rejects the notion that straight and queer relationships are interchangeable. He can't stand the expression, love is love is love. And he doesn't see why he and Aaron should have to conform to heteronormative ideals like monogamy or marriage. That puts the movie in a bit of a bind. Is it pandering to straight sensibilities if it grants Bobby and Aaron their happily ever after? I don't think it is. I also don't think it spoils anything to note that bros means to send you out of the theater in a good mood. And it does. Justin Chang is the film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed the new movie, Bros. Coming up, we hear from Rachel Bloom, best known for starring in and co-creating the Emmy Award-winning show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She stars in the new Hulu series, Reboot. This is Fresh Air Weekend. Our next guest, Rachel Bloom, is best known for co-creating and starring in the Emmy Award-winning TV series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She's now co-starring in a new Hulu series called Reboot. She spoke with Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado about the show and her career. Rachel Bloom knows a lot about dark TV comedies. She co-created and starred in the musical comedy series Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. She also co-wrote all the songs for the show. Her first real comedy job was writing for a sitcom when she was in her early 20s. Now she's playing a TV writer in the new Hulu comedy series called Reboot. Rachel Bloom's character Hannah is a writer who has a love-hate relationship with a popular family sitcom from the 2000s called Step Right Up. It's about a stepdad who moves in with his new wife, her son, and her ex-husband. Hannah wants to reboot the series with the original cast, but make the show darker and more current. Gordon, the creator of the original show, also happens to be Hannah's estranged father who, like the plot of Step Right Up, left her and her mom when she was a kid. It turns out that her dad has creative rights to the series and wants to work on the reboot, which makes Hannah want to quit. Here's a scene from the show. The original cast members want her to stay, so they all meet in her father's office. The father's played by Paul Reiser. The cast members include Judy Greer, 
Johnny Knoxville, and Keegan-Michael Key. Obviously, we were all thrown yesterday to find out that Hannah was your daughter. But, you know, family dynamics, they're so, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, I don't know. Could you find it while I'm still young, please? Gordon, we want her to stay for the good of the show. Hey, just yesterday, I asked her to stay, and she said, quote, I'd rather work at SeaWorld. And then I had to explain to him why that's an insult. Who doesn't love the Dolphin Spectacular? The Dolphins. So what is it, now you want to stay? Why, what? I, I want to do the script that I wrote. Really, because it felt like you wanted to shove it up No, I, I want to tell the truth, okay? Because you based Lawrence on yourself yes. and your new family, and you left out the old family that you abandoned. Didn't abandon, I sent checks. Your money. Whoa, <laughs> nice, nice to know you got your mom's mouth. This is the magic. This is how we take this show to the next level. Gordon, come on, Lawrence is complicated now, flawed. The, the confrontation in the last scene alone is mwah. I mean, it's, it's revelatory, it's profound, it rips your soul out. No, none of that sounds funny. It's my life, and it wasn't funny. Okay. How about you guys? You, you, you seem very quiet. I, I do like there's no kid in it. I like that I'm not a grandma. That's pretty much the last stop in Hollywood. Grandmas, playing a judge on Law & Order, dead. All right, so basically that's my choice. I do your script or I can go jump in a lake. I mean, I don't care where you jump. Rachel Bloom, welcome back to Fresh Air. Now, in the show Reboot, your character, Hannah, is a co-executive producer or co-showrunner of this new show, this new reboot of the old sitcom. And your character kind of represents the new kind of comedy, more current, for lack of a better term, edgier. And Paul Reiser's character, Gordon, you know, the guy who created the original sitcom in the in the early aughts, uh, he represents, you know, that older classic sitcom. And there are lots of scenes in the writer's room, you know, that your character has to run. Your character has hired young writers, two women of color TV writers, a gay male playwright. And Paul Reiser's character, he's brought in these writers he's comfortable with, like these old writers who have like, been around for decades. Um, and they're all in this writer's room together, often clashing. Um, I'm going to play a scene from um, one of the episodes episodes. Here's a scene where they're all together in that room trying to solve a problem in the script. Can you not do that, please? You want me to throw him on the floor? That's where your nuts usually are. I don't love how much you talk about Alan's genitals. I'm sorry. Low-hanging fruit. How does she do it? Okay, can we please get back to the story? Okay, anybody? Josie and Whitney. All right, Josie and Whitney. Were we too quick to dismiss the hot, clumsy delivery guy? No, you've got to stop pitching that. I'm telling you, it would work. It's too sitcoming. It's funny. None of us laughed. You know, between us, we have 150 years in this business, and you guys haven't laughed at anything coming from this side of the table. I don't know. I laughed at some of the sounds coming out of Alan. Story of my life. I love onions. They don't love me. I'm telling you, it could be symptoms of something serious. I I'm sorry. I, I just think some of the jokes you guys tell are a, a little corny. Yeah, and a lot of them are wildly offensive. They're like the ones my Mima tells at Thanksgiving. She sounds funny. Does she have a blow for the bee scene? Okay, yeah. I'm gonna just state the obvious. So we're coming from two entirely different planets here. Listen, sometimes it takes a while for a room to come together. We're never gonna come together. Selma, don't even. Now, in your memoir, 
You talk about your first writing job, and it was back when you were in your early 20s. It was on a sitcom. How did that writer's room, the job, your real job, compare to the way the writer's room is portrayed on this show? Well, so it's really interesting. So it was my first writing job. I was the only girl on staff, only woman. Um, I was 23. I had done a single music video and I'd written a single, what we call spec script, which is a, a script of an existing TV show. And I got hired and I was terrified. And um, I got in this room and what was interesting was there was a, I'd say pocket of guys who weren't even the upper level writers. And I'd actually known a couple of them from doing comedy and their way of, Pitching in a room was actually very old school in the way that you'd see in Reboot. It was mean. It was like mean, and they were very, very good. They were just whip-smart joke writers, but they couldn't do it without bringing you down. So this idea of comedy that some people have of, of in order to be funny, you also have to be mean to anyone who isn't as, as funny as you are. Uh, I think is a very old school idea. And actually Rose Abdu, uh, who plays Selma, her character has has a speech later in the season about being the only woman in a writer's room for years. And like, they're mean, they're hard places, and you just have to learn to get tough and be like the funniest person then to show them you need to be there. Now you're, of course, well known for the show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend that you co-created. You wrote, I think it's um, 157 songs for the show. Um, yeah. And you wrote the songs with your um, writing partner, Jack Dolgen, who you worked with since you were doing viral videos um, in your early 20s. And Adam Schlesinger, who was a member of the Fountains of Wayne, he wrote the song That Thing You Do for the Tom Hanks movie. He wrote for the Tonys. He wrote... A, you know, across the board, so many different places. And he tragically uh, died of COVID-related illnesses at the beginning of the pandemic. He was such an early case back in the spring of 2020. Um, I want to play another song or a song that you all wrote together. It's called The End of the Movie. Can you talk about writing that song, the kind of song you were inspired by it, and where it kind of falls on the show? Yeah, um, it's actually such a good example of the songwriting process. So um, we were at a dark night of the soul moment. And in this specific episode, which is in season three, it was actually the episode that Aline and I had always wanted to write for the show from the moment we pitched the show, which is an episode in which Rebecca is telling herself, now I'm the villain. Now I'm the sexy, vengeful villain. I am in, I am Glenn Close in Fatal Attraction. This is who I am now. I am out to get revenge. And it's this song where she has really messed everything up. She's not a sexy, a sexy villain. She's just messed things up and she's emotionally broken. And we needed a song for that. And um, I wrote a song called, I remember, If Only You Could See This Montage Too. Um which was sung by the group or almost like a, a narrator voiceover saying, Rebecca, don't be sad. If only you could see this montage. And it was a very good song. But Aline said, is there, is there something else that can be even more global about how she's seeing her life as this clean narrative, but, but that's not right. She's been seeing things the wrong way. 
We were banging our heads, and I remember I was at a table with Aline, Adam, and Jack, and I said, okay, so really what you want to do is, is have a song that's like, life's not a movie, life, life is a series of gradual revelations that occur over a period of time. And Adam goes, wait, wait, say that again. And I was like, it's just, I, and he's like, that's the chorus. And it was so funny because Adam otherwise had always lobbied for very succinct choruses. So the fact that he's like, no, 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 this song's actually great. And I remember he went into my office and, and got on my piano and just started playing, life is a gradual series of revelations that occur over a period of time. And, and we just together <laughs> wrote this song that was so the opposite of how we'd usually written songs. There was almost no rhyme scheme because it was about how life doesn't have a clean narrative and a clean pattern. And Adam just got it. And it's this beautiful ballad and he just heard it instantly and, and it was sung by Josh Groban. Uh, and it was just like that moment of brilliance from Adam being like, no, 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 that's the chorus. You might not think that's the chorus, but that's the chorus. And he was so right. Well, in the show, like you just said, in the show, the song is sung by a cameo from uh, Josh Groban. But on the original soundtrack for season three is the demo, which was sung by Adam Schlesinger. So let's hear a little bit of it. So this is the end of the movie whoa 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 but real life isn't a movie no 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 you want things to be wrapped up neatly the way that stories do you're looking for answers but answers aren't looking for you because life is a gradual series of revelations that occur over a period of time It's not some carefully crafted story It's a mess and we're all gonna die If you saw a movie that was like real life You'd be like, what the hell was that movie about? It was really all over the place Life doesn't make narrative sense Nuh-uh We tell ourselves that we're in a movie Whoa, whoa, whoa Each one of us thinks we got the starring role Roll, roll, roll But the truth is sometimes you're the lead And sometimes you're an extra Just walking by in the background Like me, Josh Groban Because life is a gradual series of revelations that's the song, The End of the Movie, written by our guests Rachel Bloom, Jack Dolgen, and Adam Schlesinger, who's singing here on this version. Man, I hadn't listened to that Adam demo in a while, and just hearing saying, it's a mess and we're all going to die is, ugh. Now, he died tragically of COVID at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, he was such an early case back in March of 2020. And in fact, he was sick at the same time you were giving birth to your daughter. Um, you guys were in the hospital at the same time. And, you know, not that we need to remind listeners, but it was such a sad, tough time, you know, March 2020. Um, 
you were, you know, because you were having your daughter, she was also in the NICU um, early on. So, you know, there, there were all those issues with hospital visits then. Plus, you know, your close friend and collaborator was in the hospital. You write about this time in your book. It must have been so difficult and strange. Yeah. Um, and it's only now, and actually in, in this new show that I'm doing that I'm that I'm making more more sense of it but it was yeah it was just the most awful time it was the most awful time of of my life and and I mean you know life life not making narrative sense like the weird thing with my personal experience of what happened in in March 2020 was it both didn't make any sense like I I gave birth and then the night I gave birth I found out Adam was on a ventilator. I, I didn't know he had COVID. So it was the first I f- found out he was sick. And I had just seen my daughter in the NICU. And the weird thing was my daughter was in the NICU for something called TTN. I forget what it stands for. It's basically when a baby has fluid in their lungs that hasn't been expelled from the womb. It's actually a very common thing that happens. And 10, 10 to 15% of babies born go to the NICU, which no one had told me. Um, but anyway, so I, I had just seen my baby and she was on a ventilator and then I'm told Adam's on a ventilator and it, and it felt like it made narrative sense, but in a horrible way. It felt just like cosmic and very interconnected and I didn't, I didn't like it. I didn't like how much that made sense and I didn't like how much the narrative that I dreaded in the week, because he died after a week my daughter was born, uh, like, like basically almost to the day, that entire week I was like, please don't make this the story of in my life, one life is entering and another life is exiting. I, I don't want that narrative. I don't want this to be the narrative. I don't want this to be true. And I was rejecting that narrative. And that, and that is, of course, what happened. You wrote over 150 songs for Crazy Ex-Girlfriend with Adam Schlesinger. Is it hard to write songs now? Yeah. Um, I mean, I'd been writing before I met Adam, but I think that Adam was such a pro. And so the thing that I got used to and Jack got used to over the course of four years was that we always had Adam. Yeah. Okay. We're going to do a pass on this song, but you know what? Adam's going to tell us what he thinks of this song. And Adam is like the kind of final stopgap, right? And then that went away. And so as a songwriter, what I'm doing now is like on, I'm working on this new live show and I, I have very purposefully um, kind of written every song with a different person because I'm, I'm in search of, okay, post writing 157 songs with this dynamic, like who am I as a writer now? I don't have that. I don't have the person who's going to tell me everything's going to be okay. And this song is going to be okay. Because that's what it felt like for me and Jack for four years. We always had the person who we knew at the end of the day was going to make the song okay. And so very, you know, very selfishly that went away. And for the first couple months after Adam died, I was grieving him as a, a person. And then as I got back into writing, I really started grieving him as a partner. And the, and the times that Jack and I have have written together... Um, 
we, you know, we'll say things like, oh God, if Adam were here, he'd have the, he'd, he'd know, he'd have the answer for this. Ah, what are we, what, what's that next line? What are we going for? And we, you can always, you can almost like hear his advice, but, but at the end of the day, he's not there with the answers. It's uh, very hard and, um, I don't know. I, this is, a, this is my first, this is really my, the first time I've been through grief, went through grief like that. I lost my grandparents, but there is something about when you lose grandparents, there's a preparation. You, I mean, I lost two of my grandparents before I really had memories. And my grandparents, when they passed away, I was in college and they were, they were quite old and it was, it was sad, but there was this slow decline. I, I've, I'd never lost someone suddenly like this. And it's uh, shocking. And it doesn't, doesn't make sense. Well, Rachel Bloom, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Rachel Bloom spoke to Fresh Air's Anne-Marie Baldonado. Rachel Bloom stars in the new Hulu comedy series, Reboot. Fresh Air Weekend is produced by Teresa Madden. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Dave Davies.